I'll show you politics in America. Here it is, right here. I think the puppet on the right shares my beliefs. I think the puppet on the left is more to my liking. Hey, wait a minute. There's one guy holding up both puppets. Shut up. Go back to bed, America. Your government is in control. Read my lips. Just send your cash. There has never been so many lies, so much deception. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. (laughs) Please clap. It's time for the Mike Madison Show, a new breed of conservative talk. Now, here's your host, Mike Madison. Showtime! All right, good morning. Welcome to the Mike Madison Show here at 103.9 WYAV. Thanks, as always, for joining me. I am uh, still on the road, but ending up my time in Detroit, Michigan. First extended period of time I've ever spent in Michigan, Detroit in particular. And I got to tell you, very, very nice people in Detroit. Everybody I've met uh, up here. You know, what's very interesting to me, and I think I comment on this maybe every town I go to. I, I'm in a different city, a different state every couple of months. And, and when I travel, I do not bring up politics at all. But other people do tend to broach the subject, and I'm a very uh, active listener. I'll just put it that way. I ask a lot of questions. I don't interject much. I don't want to get into debates or anything, but I am always very curious. And it's interesting, here in Michigan, you know, one of the things even coming across the state line, I was just thinking, oh my gosh, I'm in Gretchen Whitmer's state. If you didn't pay attention to what was going on in Michigan with their governor, Gretchen Whitmer, during COVID, uh, you really missed a treat of a con- complete just psychopath control freak uh, completely buying into the COVID hysteria. I would imagine Michigan was one of the last states to come out of it. And I will tell you, though, I've seen fewer masks in Michigan since I have been here uh, than I see in Jackson, Mississippi. So that's kind of interesting. I guess the people don't quite believe the hype that the governor is uh, probably still pushing. But it was very interesting. Nobody's real, uh, real keen on the state. You know, I was floored when I was out in California. You know, we want to judge the people of these states, right? What's the saying? You voted for it. Now just live in it. You know, And, and I'm not really like that because I understand that, number one, People are victims of the political class. They have been brainwashed by them. They've been indoctrinated for their entire lives. I really view most people as victims. Now, there are annoying people on both sides that I can take exception with, but I do realize that most people really don't pay that much attention and have just kind of gone along for the ride. But it's just interesting. Out in California, everybody I talked to wanted to leave the state of California. It wasn't a bunch of radical, weird leftists that I met out in California that just loved living in a land of insanity. No, they were all pretty much looking to escape, primarily due to the high cost of living. Same thing here in Michigan. I'm not hearing a lot of people that want to leave Michigan, but I did not hear a kind word about the government. I deal a lot of times with cities and infrastructure And nobody really has a lot of kind words for their local governments. So what I find fascinating is it seems to me no matter where I go in this country 
or when I'm in the state of Mississippi, everybody's mad at the political class. Everybody's mad at who runs states and who runs cities. So how in the hell do these people stay in office? How how did they get there in the first place? And how do they survive term after term after term? Because I'm not finding a whole lot of places where I go and people go, oh, things are going great here. Our government's real responsive. Everything's nice and clean and safe. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it, I'm sure that kind of place exists. Uh, I, to be honest with you, as much as I'm not a Mary, Mayor Mary fan, just because I believe there's some, there's a little totalitarianism in Madison, Mississippi, but I would imagine a lot of people are pretty happy with the, the city government of Madison. It's a very nice place. It's very nice to look at. It's safe. The property values are good. I would imagine people are, are okay with that. But I wouldn't think that they would really be happy with the state government and the legislature. So it's just very interesting to me, as I say. I'm always just kind of amazed what gets people to power and how they retain power when in my everyday dealings with people, nobody's happy with, <laughs> with this class of people that lords above us. This was my quote of the day today is from, uh, boy, I can't pronounce this name, and I might have already used this one before, Jiddu Krishnamaruti. I'm going to go on a limb and say that somehow maybe Indian or Hindu of some sort. But Jiddu had this to say, quote, It is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. It is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Uh, I might should need to get this tattooed. I wrestle a little bit. I'm kind of a Zen guy. I try to be. And one of the things of Zen and what I learned uh, when I meditated was one of the things you have to do to reduce a lot of stress is just accept things as they are. Even if you're going through a terrible divorce, worrying about it, being angry about it, if your business is falling apart, whatever it is, you can't do anything about what's happened so far in the situation you find yourself in. You need to be at peace with that and then just look to the future about, you know, you make attempts to make things better. But I will say, I'm not real well adjusted to our society as it stands right now. And maybe Jadu's comment or his quote of the day today makes me understand that uh, I shouldn't be well adjusted towards it. I don't know what made me think of this the other day. I think this is funny. Maybe only guys will get this. I don't know. When guys go to a strip bar, and I don't want to be sexist here, ladies. I don't know if there are women's strip clubs out there. And before anyone judges me, no, I'm not a big strip club guy, but uh, I hear things. <laughs> but when you go to a strip club, it, this this is inside the mind of Mike Madison right now. And again, I can't remember what made me think about this, but it was, I, I guess I was watching, I was watching polling or something like that, some some uh, people talking about their candidates, you know, around these primaries I've talked about before, you know, the, the man on the street with the average voter. And it really kind of hit me what politics is like. Politics is like uh, when guys go to a strip club, the way the women in strip clubs really make money. I guess they make some money on the stage, but the big dollars are to get guys to go into private rooms or to get lap dances to get a lot of single attention from one guy to one girl so that the girl can just clean out the guy's wallets. And one of the skills, I would say, I would just imagine, 
One of the main skills that the women must possess to extract the most amount of money from some dude in a strip club is that they need to make that guy think that they really care about them. And, and, and it hit me the other day when I was watching interviews with some people who, they, it was both sides, people talking about, oh, we really need X, Y, or Z, or I really like the, you know, my guy, my gal, whatever it is. Because essentially politicians are, are like strippers, except with not the dignity and class of a stripper, in, in that they make people actually feel like they like them. It's a bunch of con men and con women tricking you into thinking that they really care about you. And it's pathetic. We, we've all run across this, guys. I may be speaking just to you, but ladies, you may know something about this too. But it's pathetic when a guy gets plucked for everything in his wallet in a strip club and they leave there thinking, I think she really liked me. No, you know, she gets paid. No, 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 no. You don't understand. I think we really had a connection, man. <laughs> And I think it is just equally pathetic. I don't even know why. Again, I promise you, even on my time on the road, I'm not seeking out the uh, flesh palace on the road. But, but I do, it just struck me that I thought, that's what's happening here. People are being conned. This is the way a stripper cons a dude in a strip club. Is, is that too subtle? Is, is, that, is that too subtle? Because politicians actually do the things to people that strippers aren't even allowed to do inside the strip club. You know what I'm saying? Is that too subtle? There is a, a lot going on this week, this past week as I've recorded, and I'm telling you, uh, I, I, I think we're living in a simulation. I think it is almost the only explanation to exactly where we are right now. Uh, I saw the truckers have got a new strike. Now, I can't really get a sense for if it's a lot of truckers. Uh, this is about Trump's ridiculous verdict in New York where they're fining him a few hundred million dollars for doing nothing wrong, essentially, is what's happened. But some of the truckers have, uh, have got a movement on right now to refuse shipments to New York City. Again, I can't imagine the number of semis that need to go into New York City to feed all of the people in that area. I was born in, uh, on Long Island, and I always remember the statistic was, and I think it's probably still the case, there were more people who lived in the county that I was born in on Long Island than live in the state of Mississippi. So there's a lot of people you've got to feed, a lot of goods, a lot of services. I mean, a lot of trucking goes in there. So I don't know if I live in a bubble, and so it seems like every trucker's on board with this, or if it's just a, you know, a small group of people who are supportive of Donald Trump that aren't going to go in there. And, and I support the trucker protests. I, I think it's absolutely fine. I think it's a great way. I've talked a lot about this around COVID. It's a great nonviolent way to dissent and to protest and actually have an effect. I believe during COVID, I said many times, the truckers and the lawyers may be the ones that save us all. We, of course, know about the truckers' uh, activities when it came to uh, Canada. But I couldn't help, as I was reading the stories about this and listening to some of the truckers talk about this, that they're not going to take supplies into New York City because Donald Trump got a big verdict against him. And believe me, I share their view of how absolutely ridiculous that particular verdict was. 
But it left me scratching my head, as I often do, and I thought, why didn't the truckers stop delivering to New York when New York was destroying regular people, particularly during COVID? Why weren't they fired up to protest when the little guy's business was being shoved into bankruptcy during COVID? This was Mario Cuomo and then Kathy Hochul, the governors up in New York, the insane uh, Bill de Blasio in New York City. This is when the little people were getting crushed by the tens of thousands, business owners. Where, where were the truckers? There, there wasn't any passion to go defend the defenseless little people there. The, the truckers weren't weren't called upon in the spirit of protest when children in New York City were being stripped of their lives, masked in a filthy, dirty, unhealthy, dangerous mask, and then they became experimented on with an untested medical product? No response from truckers for that. And, and the thing that just gets me is, look, you can knock yourself out supporting whatever candidate you want, but this feels more like celebrity worship than really any serious political movement. Because it feels to me what we need to start prioritizing is when we see abuses against us, maybe we should be a little bit more concerned with the abuses abuses that are heaped upon ourselves. Now, I understand the hero-like status that this New York City billionaire has achieved, but at the same time, people will go to the mat for Donald Trump Meanwhile, there are people in jail and committing suicide to avoid the Department of Justice prosecutions for January 6th. I mean, this just seems very, very odd to me that all of this attention, all of this passion for this one guy. Now, I could imagine if I was in a room of Trump supporters, they would explain it to me in, <laughs> in great detail of how important this billionaire is. But I don't know, why don't truckers, that really should have happened decades ago, but while this movement of truckers actually helping us all out, you know, the Canadian truckers, they were protesting, and some American truckers too, they were protesting the treatment of people. Not one man, not one politician, not one billionaire, but the treatment of people. If the truckers want to do something great for this country right now, when you get done holding New York City hostage for Donald Trump, why don't you stop deliveries to Washington, D.C., where they persecuted and prosecuted hundreds of regular little people for the January 6th trespassing? I'm just saying, it just, <laughs> it's bizarre to me exactly what takes place and where all the passion lies in this country. Trump also this past week, he launches a line of sneakers. And to show the, the blue-collar people out there, the little people out there who believe that Trump is on his side, he sold them for the, for the low, low bag, uh, bargain basement price of $200 to $400. And of course, these, this is on the heels of Donald Trump a couple of years ago putting out his NFTs, his non-fungible tokens, so if you would buy a $99 cartoon drawing, I guess $400 sneakers would be a breeze 
And apparently it was. It was sold out. But at least a shoe is real. Real ugly, but real. I don't know if anybody saw these gold high tops that were sold. Now, if somebody bought these things because they believe they will be a... I guess they were a limited edition. We'll see. I would imagine with this level of success, if they had a limited quantity the first time around, they are proud to uh, make up a, a few more. But they have this gold high top. If you bought it as a collector's thing and you think it's going to appreciate in value, that's one thing. But I got to tell you, I'm going to laugh out loud the first person I see walking around in gold lame sneakers to support uh, Donald Trump. I started thinking about it. I thought, what, what else could Donald Trump do? Maybe he could bring back leg warmers for men. See, if I was Trump and I had this kind of, this kind of hold on the minds of, of Americans, particularly American men, I got to tell you, I think I'd try some fun stuff. I'd do a little just experimenting to see. I wonder if Donald Trump could get guys, and, and a lot of Trump supporters are some of the manliest men out there, aren't they? Some of the more rugged and rough you know, the blue-collar guys. See if, see if Donald Trump could convince them to start wearing leg warmers. <laughs> Again, I've already seen some fanny packs out there in some of the things. One I'm most interested about, and I think I saw today. I may have gotten an answer, but I can't confirm it. So what I want to see is where are these shoes made? These shoes that Donald Trump, and he's just licensing them. He didn't start a sneaker company or anything. Somebody wisely got him to come in and do his little thing where he lends his name to something. But I think it's going to be very interesting to see, and I don't know if anybody else cares, but I'm, I'm keenly interested in exactly where these things were manufactured. Are they, are they assembled, uh, built, everything here for American jobs, or are they made in China like his ties were? I was always amazed that he got a complete pass on that. Because what they say is, you know, character is doing what you do when nobody is looking. And so before Donald Trump became the, air quotes here in the studio, America first politician, he passed up on creating American jobs and he had his merchandise made in China. Then begins campaigning on the campaign trail saying... You know, these other companies that were shipping jobs to Mexico or other places, he put them on blast and made them retreat, made them ashamed that they would dare take any jobs off the shores of America, hot on the heels of his merchandise being made in China. I know, I know. Another thing I'm not supposed to talk about is by now you should know I can't help myself. I'll be all right. Be right back. Stop me now. I've got another quote of the day today. This was in a piece written by David Keene and Ruben Anderson. Apparently they write for something called the Project Syndicate. Know nothing about either of those gentlemen or their, uh, their publication, but I just thought this was interesting. They did a very interesting piece. It basically was about the fact that our politicians create problems, then get power by telling us they will solve them. Their solutions typically make things worse, and then they campaign on fixing the new problems that they just made. Uh, they said this in their piece. They said the, quote, war on terror, the war on drugs, 
and the fight against irregular migration all exhibit a pattern in which politicians and private interests benefit from problems that cannot be solved with the strategies they offer. Instead, the purported threat worsens as politicians, contractors, and enforcers exploit it for their own ends. And that's exactly what has happened. doesn't matter if it's the immigration issue, the war on terror, or the war on drugs. The people that are telling you they're fighting it the hardest always fight it in the worst way to make it actually worse because what happens then is do they get fired? Do they get held accountable for their failure in addressing the issue? Absolutely not. They get more, anyone, 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 more money and more power to fight the problem that they have been exacerbating. That was perfectly shown in last week's hysteria of the day. This one was funny. Hot off the heels of Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir Putin, uh, we got treated to a couple of big headlines to implicate Russia and try to negate the fact that Putin said some common sense things to Tucker Carlson. Of course, here were the big headlines that I saw in Drudge. Alarm over Russia space nukes. Quote, national security threat. And that was a very interesting timing I'm a little late. I've only got my two hours a week on Wednesdays or Thursdays. Bear with me. I I can't comment until then. But it was it was quite interesting, and I was happy to see so many people notice that this was uh, that, that this big national security threat of nukes in space was released on the heels of the Senate passing this big foreign aid to Ukraine package that the House was kind of sitting on their hands about. Now, it's not because Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, the Republican, doesn't want to send money to Ukraine. He does. His feet are just being held a little bit to the fire to get a little something for the border. Oh, he'll still send the $60 billion to Ukraine. Well, no, he'll, maybe he'll do one of the great uh, Republican negotiations tactics. They want $60 billion for Ukraine. If he gets $5 billion for the wall, he'll just give them $58 billion for Ukraine. <laughs> That's how Republicans negotiate. They're, they're the easiest to roll uh, in the history of Congress, I believe. But it was just very interesting as this fight over the Ukraine funding really gets heated up. We get treated to another big national security threat from that evil, evil Russia. And this was also the other big breathless headline when it came to Russia, and that is that apparently uh, Alexei is the first name, Alexei Nalvani. Uh, died in prison. He was a political prisoner of Vladimir Putin, and he died, and boy, Joe Biden wasn't having any of it. Reports of his death, if they're true, and I have no reason to believe it or not, Russian authorities are going to tell their own story. But make no mistake, make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled, not in Russia, not at home, not anywhere in the world. Putin does not only target his citizens of other countries, as we've seen in what's going on in Ukraine right now. He also inflicts terrible crimes on his own people. And as people across Russia and around the world are mourning Navalny today because he was so many things that Putin was not. He was brave. He was principled. He was dedicated to building a Russia where the rule of law existed and the word applied to everybody. Navalny believed in that Russia, that Russia. He knew it was a cause worth fighting for, and obviously even dying for. 
This tragedy reminds us of the stakes of this moment. We have to provide the funding so Ukraine can keep defending itself against Putin's vicious onslaughts and war crimes. <laughs> there it is. There it is. He goes and gives away the plot at the end. I, he, he's reading that entire thing. I'm actually watching it on a video as I play it for you here, and it is. I mean, he's squinting and reading every single word. He can't even read coherently. It's not enough that he can't think something enough to be able to just comment on this without a script, but most politicians can't. He can't even read these things and keep the thoughts in his head as he reads them. But I'll tell you what, and I, maybe I should have stopped it during the course of that clip, but every single thing he mentioned is something that he himself is guilty of doing. I mean, it is, it is the... It's just projection. This is a real thing. I've experienced it in my own life. For, to those of us who are sane, who don't live our lives, our lives based on lies, Freudian slip, if we, don't, if we actually tell the truth and just live as rational, sane, normal, decent human beings, we don't have to project our evil onto other people. But there are people, and I'm sure you've met some of them too. I've had the unfortunate the unfortunate experience of meeting some of these people where they actually accuse you of doing what they do. This is Joe Biden and the U.S. foreign policy establishment projecting onto Vladimir Putin exactly what they do. This, ironically, is the week that I believe we have the final trials in where the final decision comes out of England of whether or not they are going to release Julian Assange to be extradited to the United States to face, I believe, 170 years in prison. Julian Assange is just a journalist. All he did was take information and publish it. And the fact that our cowardly media here has not taken up his cause for years now and instead parroted the regime line of both the Trump, let me, let me make sure I'm being clear here, Donald Trump with Mike Pompeo were the ones that originally persecuted and prosecuted Assange. Mike Pompeo wanted to murder Assange. But Joe Biden is just perpetuating that while he bemoans this Nalvani's death over in Russia. He talks about abusing his own people. This is the man who has put set the Department of Justice, the largest legal machine on planet Earth, against moms and dads and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters across this country for merely walking around the Capitol on a particular day. That's what Joe Biden, the tyrant, the authoritarian, has done. And he projects this onto Vladimir Putin. It's, it is amazing if this man had a shred of dignity and an ounce of actual memory, he might feel bad about doing something this obscene and hypocritical. But of course, he doesn't know what he's doing. Now, what's interesting is I was going to play you a clip, a hidden camera clip of this Nalvani guy from Russia. And people, I don't think, really have followed this story. If You have to be kind of a big political junkie to really know who this Nalvani is, but uh, there is a, there's a hidden camera clip of him with somebody that is, it's said is an MI6 agent where essentially he's asking for 10 to $20 million a year in order to lead an organized resistance, essentially a coup against the Russian government. Now think about that for just a second. 
We've got people right now wasting away in jail. Many of the J6ers have committed suicide rather than continue their fight with the Department of Justice here for simply crossing some uh, non-existent barricade where supposedly they weren't supposed to be. Or maybe they didn't even, they weren't even there. They just were in the vicinity. This Nalvani guy was actually trying to take money from the West. And I'm sure this would have involved MI6 and the CIA, Western powers. He was trying to get money from Western powers to lead a revolt against Vladimir Putin, the sitting president of Russia, and the Russian government. And Joe Biden, while he prosecutes the J6ers just for being in the neighborhood, he cries his crocodile tears for a guy that was actually trying to lead a coup in Russia. The funny thing is, I can't find that hidden camera video anymore. It's been taken down. I had two links to it, but it has actually been taken down. Uh, Of course, Joe Biden also does not mention American journalist... Uh, was his name? Galonzo Lira, I believe it was. This was an American journalist in Ukraine speaking out against the Ukrainian government who died a couple of months ago now at the hands of the Ukrainian government. This was an actual American who died, killed by the Ukrainians. And strangely enough, Joe Biden didn't feel the necessity And then think of all the other politicians that I'm sure lined up on the Sunday shows or took to their microphones, those who want this funding for Ukraine to line their own pockets. None of them shed a tear for an American journalist killed by the Ukrainian government just a couple of months ago. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that strange? Not to any of us that are paying attention. The world continues to get more bizarre with these freaks in Washington, D.C., they passed, I think, as some other piece of, of legislation that, I, for the life of me, I can't figure out. If there is a person out there who supports this, please email mikemadison at wyab.com and tell me why you want your representative spending a minute on this next bill we'll discuss when I come back. Stick around. All right, we are back. This is the Mike Madison Show, 103.9 WYAB. I just wanted to mention, too, this Nalvani clip that I can't find, the hidden camera of him asking for money to lead a coup against the Russian government. Those were, uh, my links were posted on Twitter. Huh. That seems strange to me that Twitter took down those videos. It's almost as if Twitter's not the free speech utopia that we've been led to believe that it really is. <laughs> but I'm sure, I'm sure I'm wrong. Elon's going to come through in the end. Any minute now, he's going to be great. So I ran across this as long as we're talking about kind of foreign policy stuff. You know, that's one of my favorites. The economy and foreign policy is my favorite thing because it's, it's so easy to pick apart. It's incredibly, horrifically sad. We'll get to some of that too. But On last Wednesday, the House passed a bill that prohibits the U.S. from opening diplomatic relations with the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad and expands 
harsh sanctions on Syria to prevent other countries from normalizing with Syria. The Assad, listen to how they name this thing. The Assad Regime Anti-Normalization Act passed in a vote of 389 to 32, demonstrating broad bipartisan support for the economic war against Syria? Only 28, and, and you want to see why I have such absolute disdain. Hatred feels like they're getting the best of me for me to actually hate them, but I, it's, it's kind of a hatred, hatred for the Republican Party as well. 28 Democrats and only four Republicans voted against this thing. I, I'm just assuming Thomas Massey's in there. Apparently there's four Republicans that realize what's going on between Syria and their neighbors is none of our damn business. This legislation is now headed to the Senate. I don't know where it stands. As I read this, I haven't heard that it's passed the Senate. It was introduced as a reaction to Arab countries repairing relations with the Assad government in Syria and being brought into the, uh, back into the Arab League. This is uh, using sanctions under something called the Caesar Act, it was implemented in 2020 and allows the U.S. to sanction any individual or entity that does business with the Syrian government. These sanctions are specifically designed to prevent Syria from rebuilding. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken has previously said it is U.S. policy to, quote, oppose the reconstruction of Syria as long as Assad remains in power. Now, we have been sanctioning Syria uh, for since 2014, I believe, somewhere in that area. And I don't know a single American that has got a problem with Syria. Syria, interestingly, was actually fighting against ISIS. It was proven that these attacks that supposedly Bashar al-Assad uh, perpetuated on his own people, they were proven to be false flag attacks actually committed by ISIS and what are called the, the, uh, the what do they call them, the, uh, the, the radical freedom fighters of Syria, the ones that the CIA and the United States government backed. Look, we backed ISIS in Syria to topple their government. ISIS, one of these terrorist groups that we have to be molested at the airport to su supposedly protect us from, we were actually funding in Syria to destroy that country. And one more time, I'll say it. If you don't understand what I'm saying, go look at pictures of Syria, of Damascus, before we brought democracy to them and afterwards. This once beautiful city was turned into rubble. And they're led by the Republican Party and the vast majority of these Kool-Aid-drinking, neocon, warmongering Democrats as well have just passed an act. Now nobody can be friendly with Syria unless we say so. This is just unbelievable to me, not to mention the fact that, and I'm going to say it again, started under the Trump administration and continued under Joe Biden. Trump bragged about this some. We've been stealing Syrian oil. We are occupying. We've got our troops in harm's way. In a country that does not want us there, we are illegally occupying part of Syria and stealing their oil. 
We occupied the part that's got the oil in it because we want to deprive them of the ability to rebuild their own country from the devastation that we funded. I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable to me. And it's one of these things where, you know, until war comes to our land, until the bombs start dropping in our cities, until our kids are killed in their school or our businesses are destroyed and we are forced to flee with only what we can carry on our backs, nobody will care. Nobody will understand what these people go through. I can't really even understand what it is, but I'm, a, I, I'm paying enough attention to know it's wrong in that our government is a bunch of thieving monsters, blood-soaked criminals to do this, and they are still doing it, as I said. If there's anybody out there that ex- can explain to me what your fear is of Syria. Syria. One of the countries that I believe did tributes after 9-11 wanting to help us because they were against these radical jihadists. I believe Bashar al-Assad, I, be- I think he was... He was educated in Great Britain. The guy has a shaved chin. He's no, uh, he's no Ayatollah. He's no radical Muslim leader. He's a very moderate guy. And for some reason, we've set our sights on him. We can only imagine it has something to do with that sweet oil that America's been stealing for a while. But with all of the things happening in this country, and I'm going to cover some of those tomorrow, with all the things going on in this country right now, your Congress just took time out of their day to send a very strong statement that nobody can be friends with Syria because we say so, and Syria cannot rebuild its own country because we say so. that makes sense to you? Yeah, me either. I'll be right back. All right, final segment for the day. You know, the, the, the best thing about the rank and file, like the people in the Republican Party, I'm not talking about the parasites at the top that for some reason keep hoodwinking all these good people into voting for them and supporting them. But it has been pretty amazing to see the turn in the past five to seven years uh, where Republicans are willing to say these wars are wrong and we want to stop all this endless war because the Republican Party really was the, it was the nexus of the war on terror and this national security state. And I'm so glad, and I give Trump credit for a lot of that. He gave a lot of cover to people to still feel masculine and be anti-war. I think that's fantastic, but there's still that one blind spot. That one blind spot, and that is what's going on right now with Israel and the people in Gaza who are being devastated. And people think, well, that's, you know, that one we have to fight. I, I thought this was kind of interesting just in closing here. Because I ran across a story on Zero Hedge. It said these are the world's biggest democracies. Now, one of the big things that people say when they talk about Israel and that we need to continue to send them tens of billions of dollars because anyone, anyone, Mike, they're the only democracy in the Middle East. And to that, I have said for quite some time now, okay, and? What, what, what does that get? What does that mean to... Americans or Americans' prosperity or or really anything. I mean, I think it's great for the people of Israel. 
that maybe they get to vote, they're not exactly a, they're not a constitutional republic, I'll put it that way. But, you know, I'm glad they've got some freedom for the Israeli people. That's great. But why does that mean that we need to send them billions and billions of dollars every year? And then I ran across this zero hedge story. These are the world's biggest democracies. And so I ask you this. Uh, Here they are. India is the biggest and the United States is the second biggest. India, 1.4 billion people in a democracy. How much blood and treasure should we sacrifice for India's borders? You know, they always have a big dust up with the Pakistanis over Kashmir. Come on, Mike. Pakistan's not a, not a democracy, and India is. Should we send billions of dollars to India to defend themselves against a non-democracy? Is it that important to us? On this list also is Indonesia, Brazil, Japan, the Philippines, Germany, Thailand, United Kingdom, France, South Africa, Italy, Colombia, South Korea, and Spain. Now, in that laundry list of all of the biggest democracies in the world... How many of our troops do you think should die for each one of those countries? Now, the sad thing is that we probably have troops stationed in all of them, but I would imagine if I went up to the rank-and-file person who uses that, but Mike, Israel's the only democracy in the Middle East. Okay, well, does that mean that we need to equally support uh, Thailand? How many billions a year do we need to go in to support Thailand's uh, borders? How about South Africa? Huh? Hey, look, it's, it, it must be one of the only democracies on the African continent. Should we be supporting the government of South Africa and sending our kids to fight and die and tens of billions of dollars and, and weapons and everything to South Africa to secure that big democracy in, at the tip of South Africa? Of course not. Colombia? Spain? Anyone? Anyone? I just think the talking point of they're the only democracy in the Middle East is just so hollow. It makes no sense to me. There are other arguments for it as well, but I just thought that was kind of interesting. There's a whole lot of democracies out there. we got a lot of spending to do if we're going to defend them all. That's all the time i got. Talk to you tomorrow. Uh, Bye-bye. Streets know you, and when it's time to handle business, then we know what to do. Me and my-